Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi. This is Dr. Kenyatha Loftus, host of New Books in Political Science. We are here today talking with Dr. Julieta Waugh, Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies at San Diego State University, about her new book, Trafficking Women's Human Rights. Dr. Waugh analyzes how discourse on human trafficking creates the boundaries of victimhood and thereby restricts concepts of punishment, remedy, and citizenship. Analyzing legislation, public discourse, and interview materials, Dr. Waugh traces how gender, nationality, and racial identities become inscribed into the concept of sex trafficking. The subject matter is heavy, but Dr. Waugh presents a delightfully rigorous theoretical framework, careful interpretation of proffered data, and poignant illustrations. I enjoyed reading this book and entertaining its thesis, and I enjoyed speaking with its author, Dr. Julieta Waugh. So, here we are, New Books in Political Science, talking with Julieta Waugh about trafficking women's human rights. Listen in. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Political Science. We're here today with Dr. Julieta Hua, Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies at San Francisco State University. And we're here talking about her new book, Trafficking Women's Human Rights. Julieta, it's good to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, can you just tell us a little bit about your background to get us started? Sure. I, um, I, when I was first kind of a college student, I was a political science major. I was really interested in um, just politics in general and political theory more specifically. Um, but then I kind of veered toward the, you know, gender and politics, and so I ended up um, taking some courses in women's studies, uh, and eventually I found um, that I was also piqued kind of by the question of race and race relations in the U.S., and so I did a Ph.D. program in ethnic studies, race and ethnic studies, and that kind of led me to where I am now, which is back in women and gender studies. Awesome. Uh, Can you tell us how you got started on this particular book, Trafficking Women's Human Rights? Well, this book came out of um, kind of a broader, my broader interest in thinking about why it was that even though we kind of know better than to, I don't know, use these kinds of neocolonial or sometimes very racist uh, assumptions around quote unquote the backwardness of others, um, specifically when you're thinking about like uh, global politics and um, the way in which oftentimes like the so-called third world gets framed as um, not just economically but socially and culturally backward and how that gets used to explain kind of continued inequalities. And it seems like people know that that's kind of not an okay framework, but on the other hand, it seems like it still persists. And so my bigger question was why, and why does it still persist, and what is it that kind of keeps us, um, keeps that frame kind of in the picture? And when I was looking at human rights, it seemed like um, those those frames that I saw as problematic and many other people see as problematic kept still kind of 
cropping up in the background, um, especially in the ways in which oftentimes human rights violations are, um, you know, represented through um, the quote-unquote other women in other places. Mm-hmm. And so I was curious as to why that was the case. Like, why don't we in the U.S., for instance, um, why aren't we willing to see kind of human rights violations um, in the so-called industrialized or developed world more easily than we tend to see it in these other places? So that's kind of the bigger uh, questions that I was interested in and that led me to specifically this book. Awesome. Well, let's dive in. Uh, you begin with uh, a discussion of the legal stakes of human trafficking. Uh, can you talk to us about those? I do. Sure. Um, I was, you know, I initially I was kind of interested more broadly in um, looking at why different, why there are certain kinds of um, human rights figures that continually uh, persist. Like another figure would be the victim of. Um, female genital circumcisions or female genital mm-hmm. mutilation. Um, and so, you know, I was kind of more broadly interested in why certain kind of figures um, continue to represent human rights and specifically women's human rights violations. Um, but I decided just to focus on trafficking because it was kind of a um, like a topic that had gained um, uh, like a greater part of the national imagination in like the more recent years, um, particularly with the passage of the um, uh, 2000 law, the um, Victims of Trafficking and Violence Protection Act. So I started there, and that was kind of why I was interested in, or I started with the kind of legal frames to understand how um, something like sex or trafficking, and more specifically sex trafficking, could become... um, kind of a, a legal issue for you like US citizens. Very interesting. Uh can you tell us a little bit about um I guess let's just move to the next chapter and talk about universalism universalism and the conceptual limits of human rights. And I'm very intrigued by this notion of the paradox of universalism. Yes. I am too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like one of the things that, uh, one of the bigger questions that I had was, you know, it seems really important to be attentive to cultural difference and particularity, um, especially kind of in the, you know, age of multicultural discourses and um, cultural relativism and um, all of that stuff. Uh, And yet at the same time, I felt like oftentimes those same kind of cultural differences were used to explain uh, like failures for certain kinds of uh, communities. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the general, um, that's the bigger question that I had when I was looking at um, kind of the chapter one. And specifically, you know, the thing with human rights is that there's always this kind of need to um, make some claim to like a universal set of principles or universal set of rights or even like a universal conception of what makes humanity humanity, right, on the basis of which you would extend some sort of protection or um, kind of mutually agreed to um, recognition of like the uh, being of others. 
And so it seemed like that's a good thing. (laughs) And yet at the same time, it seems like historically there's been a lot of, um, just like a lot of, no one's ever been able to agree on what exactly that is. No one's ever been able to come up with a set of um, principles that everyone agrees is going to work in terms of defining a set of rights. Um, Mm -hmm. And so my question was, you know, why is it maybe there's something in the whole project of um, wanting to try to find universal principles that is itself uh, um, presenting limits. Maybe it's just um, the frame of universalism itself that might be, um, you know, posing these kinds of um, limits and conditions. And so that's that's what I wanted to look at. <laughs> and so, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. So you're saying that it's we're having difficulty defining what it means to be human. I think so. I think there's always been, um, or I would say, you know, how we define human has always changed and shifted. I don't think it's ever um, like a stable or, um, you know, to me, my perspective is that we're always um, kind of continuously redefining or defining how we define, you know, humanity and what makes us different from, I don't know, um, things that we see as not human. And so, um, yeah, so in that sense, I feel like it's uh, constantly something that's being made and remade, and human rights is one place where I think um, those processes, you can see how that process uh, takes place, or it's one place where you can see that process taking place. And so in this um, desire to construct kind of uh, a table of what should be universal rights, we're having a hard time. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit more about what that means? What are the implications of that? Uh, The implications of um, having a hard time defining what it means? Yes. Um, having a hard time defining what it means to be human and sure. trying to apply this uh, kind of in, a, in an international uh, in an international frame. Right, right. Yeah, in it, um, I mean, as a lot of people have pointed out, um, you know, different people in different places have different conceptions of um, what it is that makes humans humans and what that um, entitles one to. Um, and you can even see it in the... Uh, Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which I tried to talk a little bit about in that chapter. Like, that came out of a specific uh, historical political context right after World War II, um, entering into the kind of Cold War, and so there are a set of uh, rights that that document articulates that are much more, they come much more out of the tradition of understanding humanity and its entitlements from the kind of liberal, um, like British, U.S. um, tradition. Uh, But on the other hand, there's also a set of rights that comes much more out of the kind of socialist revolutions, and that was a very different way of thinking about um, the entitlements that one um, have access to on the basis of being human. Um, and so I think that document is a good example of how different kind of viewpoints and different people had different perspectives on what it meant to kind of claim humanity and then what those entitled, what that claim um, entitled one to. And I think it still persists. Um, and so I'm just, um, I guess in this chapter I was 
interested in trying to understand how it might be. Um, I mean, I don't actually know that it's possible to make a claim to universalism, and that's why I talk about the paradox. Um, not, and I don't know that I have an, an alternative necessarily, and I'm not saying that the desire to want to claim universalism is um, necessarily bad. Um, it's just I was interested in understanding how, like, what the limits are. Like, what you can make that claim, but then you have to be attentive to the fact that um, there are limits to the extent that you can make the claim, and then making the claim might sometimes also... Um, you know, it establishes a set of assumptions already uh, that you also, I think, should be attentive to, if that makes any sense. Absolutely. It absolutely does. You talk about the liberal kind of Euro-American um, tradition and uh, as um, compared to the socialist tradition, for example. Can you talk about what these two um, ideas mean with respect to uh, what it means to be a woman, defining womanhood? <laughs> Sure. Um, yeah. So in the in the kind of tradition of the um, what I call like the first set of rights um, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, the perspective is very much based on that tradi- the Enlightenment tradition, as I say, um, where it's um, framed in terms of like individual rights to which someone is entitled to um, and must have the protection protection from the state. And then those kind of social, the rights that come out of the socialist revolutions are more framed about around um, the social, the entitlements to which the state is obligated to kind of ensure. And so it was a, two different really, two really different perspectives on how to think about rights. Um, in the kind of liberal tradition, or the, um, I should say, uh, British, Anglo-American tradition of the individual rights, um, in terms of gender, I feel like, uh, as people like Joan Scott have talked a lot about, um, the focus on individualism meant that um, oftentimes it was the, or maybe I should put it this way, one of the things I like about um Something that Joan Scott, the historian, had wrote about uh, was that in these kind of um, uh, individual liberalist traditions, even though the focus was on ensuring uh, and defining the individual citizen, that individual citizen also had to be um, was unique, but also had to be something that was kind of universal at the same time. So there had to be some sort of shared notion of um, the citizen, even while there was also this recognition that he was unique. And she argues that gender was uh, exactly what enabled the kind of um, generic idea of the citizen to also um, be unique, because he was unique from, for her, like women as citizens. And so that's a kind of tension that I also see happening, um, not just through gender or gendered frames, but also through these kinds of um, cultural and racial frames. You know, Mm -hmm. that there's this kind of desire, you you have to have this kind of, even while you recognize the the uniqueness of the individual citizen subject, there also has to be some sort of... um, um, acceptance that he or she is uh, also not unique, right? It's just like everybody else. 
Um, and so there's always some, so in that sense, there's um, difference becomes a way to articulate uniqueness, even while it's subsumed under this general idea of um, universality. Awesome. We're talking today with Dr. Julietta Hua, Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies at San Francisco State University, and we're talking to her about her book, Trafficking Women's Human Rights. The way you begin Chapter 2 is very intriguing. You start with the stories of Zipporah Mazindo mm-hmm. and Eva Petrova, yes. and you talk about the privileging of certain types of formulations over others uh, and certain types of narratives over others. Can you talk to us about that? Yeah, I I was definitely one of the things that really intrigued me about um trafficking um and the way that trafficking has become kind of a social and political kind of issue for the US kind of mass audience um was that there seemed to be a very particular kind of story of victimization that often accompanied um this idea of trafficking and those stories seem to, um, as many other kind of um, feminist scholars have pointed out, the stories are oftentimes problematic because they don't allow us to see how um, the violences of trafficking might actually happen in other kinds of ways or manifest themselves differently and that we might, might not be able to see them. Um, and I happen to find, and actually I should um, I should say that my uh, graduate student of mine actually found this Eva Petrova case, uh, which was really interesting because in that case she actually uh, says to the courts that she was kind of asked or encouraged by the U.S. authorities to narrate herself in a particular way in order to um, enable the U.S. authorities to make this anti-trafficking or this trafficking prosecution case and then also for her to be able to claim that she was a victim and then get the kind of benefits that come from that. And she later retracts those statements and and actually says, you know, I was, that's not how I see myself. Um, And it's, it just happened to be one of um, kind of many trafficking prosecution cases, and it's the only one that we could find where it was, you know, documented that um, one of the witnesses and purported victims had actually come out and said, you know, that's not actually how I saw myself, and I was kind of forced into narrating my experience in a particular way. And it seemed really interesting to think about um, what's at stake beyond just the fact that, you know, there might be other victims that don't get recognized because they don't fit into those stories, um, but also, like, what those stories say about how we, the kind of assumptions we not just have but help produce around um, women who are victimized specifically by trafficking. Very cool. I I was intrigued by this notion of I have to be a certain uh, I have to well one she had to claim victimhood, uh, and then like a certain type of victimhood to be for her situation to be understood, and that she Eva decided to um, be exported back to Russia instead of continuing this narrative. 
in the court. Right. Yeah, definitely. And um, there's a woman, her name is Dina Haynes, who uh, wrote a really, really nice article, which she talks about how that story or that um, kind of pre predetermined frame of victimization, she calls it the chain to a bed and a brothel <laughs> narrative. Um, and it's something that comes up often when you think about, um, when you read about, and when we read about generally like sex work and prostitution as well, that somehow it's, um, it's hard for us kind of socially and culturally to think about sex work as something that's um, not necessarily, or that's not totally coerced. And I just wanted to, you know, kind of complicate, complicate those things. Yeah. In chapter three, you talk about um, writing stories of victimization and rescue, and you end the chapter kind of with this discussion of um, a lady who says, well, I'm not going to tell the story that way um, because I don't want to hurt what I have going on here. And, you know, part of part of that, I don't want to help hurt what's what I have going on here is ambiguous, but the reporter takes it as, oh, she doesn't want to, um, she could be referring to that she doesn't want to hurt her life as she has it, or she doesn't want to, you know, there are many ways, but the reporter takes it in a, in a way that privileges his work in, in that situation. So can you talk about the kind of the, the work of reporters as heroes uh, or as rescuers in these narratives of victimization? Definitely. Um, so it's not just in the, what I found was that it's not just in these um, legal cases of trafficking prosecution cases where, and it makes sense, in a legal kind of criminal case, you need a distinguishable victim and you need a distinguishable um, criminal. And, you know, the point is to make those distinctions very clear and make, the, make it clear to the jury and the judge and everything. Um, but, but I also saw that happening not just in the legal space or the, the space of the courtroom, but also in these... Um, uh, these news media stories um, and also documentaries on uh, trafficking. And the example that you bring up is an interesting one because I think what happens is that oftentimes we don't, we, we, we you know, we read news stories and we take them as kind of um, uh, just like statements of truth or fact. And, you know, in some ways they are. Um, but we don't often think about how, like, the, the, how they're framed. Mm-hmm. And it seemed like, especially with this particular uh, story around um, trafficking that Nicholas Kristof um, writes, you can see how um, even his you can see how he himself is kind of interpreting and reframing um, the the response of the the woman that he's interviewing so that she actually gives these very ambiguous answers, but he interprets them to kind of validate his argument, which is that she is in fact being um, kind of victimized as, you know, a sex trafficking victim working in this brothel in Cambodia. Yeah, that was very intriguing. Um, another way that um, kind of our, our ideas of trafficking are framed are through race and sexuality. And uh, in Chapter 4, you talk about uh, origin stories and public images of trafficking. Can you talk to us about that? 
Yeah, I so one of the things I wanted to do, um, I mean, for me, the book kind of is, um, one, trying to understand the limits of universalism, two, trying to kind of um, complicate this idea of the narrative of victimization that gets a- attached to certain kinds of um, violences like trafficking, and then three, thinking about how... Um, those narratives help construct um, this idea of cultures that are both culpable and also complicit. And what I found then in looking at that was that these cultures were also framed as cult, um, framed through kind of sexual and racialized meanings. Um, and so um, in the fourth chapter, the one that looks at public images or focuses kind of a little bit more on public images, uh, because it was kind of based in these um, visual examples, I thought it would be a good place to think about or talk about talk a little bit about how the cultures of kind of culpability are made recognizable to U.S. audiences through these racialized and sexualized uh, frames. And so, when in sex trafficking discourses. There's a kind of story that trafficking happens, you know, mostly to Asian women and then also obviously Latin American and African women and then also kind of to Eastern European or women from the former um, Eastern Bloc. And it was interesting to me how those um, different stories of why trafficking happens to uh, people in those places gets juxtaposed against each other. And I focus mostly on or just for this purpose on the story of um, the origin of sex trafficking in Asia versus the story of the origin of sex trafficking in Eastern Europe to think about how um, those stories actually help, are both based on and also help to shape um, racial discourses around whiteness, around um, national belonging, um, around Asian difference. so, and how those uh, racial meanings are specifically tied to how um, we, or the, how those racial meanings are specifically tied to, to sexuality. Uh-huh. And something you uh, sprinkled throughout the book, and I wanted to give you a chance to talk about, were um, alternative ways of of thinking about human rights or human trafficking. So, you know, in the uh, when you talked about your interest and motivations for this project, you talked about the uh, your experience of hearing kind of the same stories over and over, right? Uh, and so I was wondering, well, I'm someone who hears the same stories. I, I didn't have an alternative framework in mind. What are some alternative stories I, I, I could hear um, that would be available? <laughs> sure. Um, and, you know, I'm not... That's always the hard part about, uh, I think, doing this kind of work um, where you're just, like, pointing out um, things that you find kind of troubling (laughs) 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 is that everyone wants solutions, and I I can't – honestly, I can't – I don't necessarily know that I have a solution, and the solution I do have is to – I think it's important to be attentive to what's happening kind of beneath the surface as Mm – to like requote um, an anti-trafficking um, campaign, <laughs> um, because I think that if we can, if if like we're more attentive to how we're seeing things and the ways in which we're looking and what that might mean and how that might actually 
help how how we look might actually be reinforcing or um, being based on kind of assumptions we already have around difference and around um, I don't know victimization and all of these other things. Um, then I think that it opens up your field of vision in a sense, um, and I think that's always a good thing. <laughs> and I guess that's kind of my my hope is that you know even though it is a, a kind of a critique that um, the critique is also um, convincing people that it's important to have of that kind of critical eye to see what else is going on. Awesome. We are talking to Dr. Julieta Hua, Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies at San Francisco State University, about her book, Trafficking Women's Human Rights. Uh, in Chapter 5, uh, you talk about the, name of, the title of the chapter is Refiguring Slavery, Constructing the United States as a Racial Exception. And you talk about how using the – tying the idea of trafficking to slavery uh, has implications um, for how – how we understand what what is going on with with human rights there? Can you talk to us about that chapter a little bit? Yeah, I and I'm sure you know it's kind of everywhere how um, stuff on you know when people talk about trafficking, they oftentimes use the or they oftentimes talk about it as a kind of modern day slavery. Um, and I wasn't so much interested in trying to say that it was or it wasn't slavery. What I was interested in seeing was how, what the What's the effect? You know, what's the impact of using that language to describe um, trafficking? And specifically, it seemed to me that using this language of um, transatlantic slavery that was, you know, that's kind of uh, clearly placed in the U.S. past and using that language to reference or describe kind of quote-unquote modern-day trafficking um, was a place where I could really unpack how, um, you know, these kinds of racial discourses um, that we often think of as very domestic, um, how they actually um, are also about um, the quote-unquote global. And so in some ways, I guess what I'm trying to say and what I wanted to do in that chapter was to connect how human rights, which is often, um, when we think about human rights and talk about human rights, we often don't talk about it in terms of race. We often talk about it in terms of uh, culture and nation, um, but not necessarily race. Um, And when we talk about race relations, especially kind of in the domestic context, we don't actually think of it as um, uh, global per se, right? We think about it in the the context of um, like the U.S., um, U.S. political relations, the U.S. past, and all of these things. Absolutely. And what I, yeah, and what I wanted to do was actually draw um, draw those two things together um, because I think that how we think about race domestically always has a kind of um, global scope. For instance, I talk a little bit about how um, the racialization of Asian Americans, for example, as a lot of Asian American scholars have pointed out, has always depended on this kind of imagined Asian outside. And so, you know, Asian Americans have been racialized as kind of perpetual foreigners, um, and that racialization depends on this imagining of an Asia that's not the U.S., right, that's outside. And in that sense, it's always um, a kind of global process, or it's a process that um, that draws, on, or it's the process that um, evokes a kind of global uh, scene. 
Um, and in the same ways, I think that when we think about human rights, um, it, you know, it is about culture, but in the same ways, when we talk about culture, we can't help but also um, – there's also this kind of backdrop of race that's always informing how we think about culture. Um, and that doesn't necessarily get talked about very explicitly, I think, in um, a lot of discussions around human, human rights. And so that was something I wanted to draw out a little bit. And it seemed like it was a good place to do that when thinking about how the use and the, of the frame of transatlantic slavery gets um, evoked to just. Um, modern-day trafficking and how that works to kind of establish specifically a kind of U.S. national mythology that's very much about constructing um, a sense of the United States as this kind of multicultural place that's overcome racism to some extent, right, and is thus poised to address kind of the quote-unquote new problems of human rights and trafficking. Awesome. We're talking to Dr. Julietta Waugh, Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies at San Francisco State University, about her book, Trafficking Women's Human Rights. Uh, so tell us uh, how about how you conclude the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to really, you know, uh, the conclusion's really kind of homage to my students because um, my students have really, you know, every semester, it doesn't matter, like every class, every new set of students, um, they're always really, here especially at San Francisco State, they're really, really interested in action and social action. And they really want to know, what, you know, what can we do? How is this like, how can we be active? And, you know, how is this about um, changing things on the ground? Um, and so one of the things I wanted to do was um, show how, like, the questions that we tend to think about or describe as abstract or conceptual are very much about the the day to day and the the real like how we think about um the quote unquote real helps shape the real into how we know it um if that makes any sense at all <laughs> and so you know the fact that we have this kind of um uh, reservoir of knowledge and this backdrop through which to under look at something and to understand it in a certain way helps us understand that thing that way and then helps us like respond you know or think about um, shaping responses and so in the conclusion what I wanted to do was try to connect how um, uh, you know, the conceptual is very much um, how we come to think about the real actually helps shape the real itself. And so to try to tie together uh, the conceptual with the uh, what people sometimes call the material or the real. And so it, it's something that you can see, I think, really clearly in trafficking, in the kind of trafficking discourse, because it was something that came to be in 2000 with the law. It made it necessary to be able to look at something, pinpoint it, and define it as trafficking. But then how we come up with those definitions and how we, like, you know, define victims as trafficking victims rather than just undocumented immigrants or who knows, sex workers, 
um, that became a, a very, that actually helped shape, right, who can really become a trafficking victim. Um, and so that was my hope, was to be able to um, show people how it's important to think about how we think yes. <laughs> in order to kind of understand what we think of as, like, you know, the real Absolutely. That comes through in the book. Uh, you do an excellent job. I've, I really enjoyed reading this <laughs> You're very this generous. Book. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we were talking to Dr. Julieta Hua, Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies at San Francisco State University, about her book, Trafficking Women's Human Rights. Julieta, before you go, I want to know what's what, what do you have cooking? What's up next? What do I have next? Um, I guess I'm going to try to take a vacation. <laughs> <laughs> But I have, um, you know, it's, it was something that's been interesting for me, and I don't know if it's necessarily something that I'm interested in doing myself, but I would like other people to think about is how to, um, the kind of post-9-11 moment in which uh, this kind of trafficking discourse uh, becomes very prominent in the U.S. public imagination how it maybe coincides or resonates with the um, kind of war on terror. Um, that's something that I, I didn't really talk, you know, I don't talk about it at all, but it's something that I've been thinking about is how the the frame of, like, the war on terror also helps uh, inform how we think about um, human rights and specifically trafficking. So that's just, like, a broader question. Um, yeah. <laughs> And and no insight on what's what your next book is gonna look like? I'm sorry, I can you repeat that? We we get no tips on what your next book are gonna look like. <laughs> well, I do have um I do have another kind of book project interest. It's very different uh, on the surface, but I hope that the questions are actually very similar. Um but that that book is actually about um how it's actually about animals. Huh. <laughs> yes. And so uh, I, am I guess it's, yeah, I don't know if I should <laughs> more I'm officially not. intrigued. <laughs> Do tell. <laughs> I mean, generally, I'm kind of interested in looking at why animal studies, um, just to kind of put a blanket term on a, a lot of different kinds of um, political and intellectual projects, why and or what the what's at stake when animal studies is framed through the kind of um, framework of rights. So I feel like there's two dominant ways of approaching the question of animals or non-human animals, I should say. And one is to emphasize rights, right? The, or it's this kind of ethical obligation of humans to recognize the rights of non-human animals. Um, and then the other frame that's oftentimes evoked is the, the kind of affective frame. The humans, um, humans should and do care about animals and we should respect that there is this kind of um, care. Uh, or this kind of um, emotional or affective uh, frame, and that that should be the basis of recognizing some sort of um, non non-human animal uh, right, I guess. Um, and I'm kind of interested in like how like what gets lost when it's just framed as a question of um, ethics and rights and or um, emotion and affect. So that's kind of broadly. <laughs> I want to read that book. I will buy that book. 
Thank and I'm hoping actually to do interviews with um, people who work at chimpanzee sanctuaries. And huh. I've done I've done a couple, and it's been really interesting. I mean, I'm just really interested, not necessarily in um, the animals, the chimpanzees per se, but in what kind of draws people to do that the work that they do in caring for um, non-human animals. Wow. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it. This is Dr. Julieta Hua, Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies at San Francisco State University. We talked to her today about her book, Trafficking Women's Human Rights. Julieta, thank you so much. Thank you. It has been a real pleasure. This is Kenyatta Loftus, host of New Books in Political Science, and we've just spoken with Dr. Julieta Waugh, Assistant Professor of Women and Gender Studies at San Diego State University, about her new book, Trafficking Women's Human Rights. It's something fabulous for you to read. Until next time. <laughs>